morning. As part of our worship each week, we read the scriptures. When we read the Bible out loud, we believe that God speaks, that Jesus leads his church, and that the Spirit works in the heart of his people. I'll be reading from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. After the reading of God's word, I will proclaim, this is the word of the Lord. And I would invite you to respond prayerfully, speak, Lord, your servants hear. Colossians 2, 1 to 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. And I forgot to ask you to stand up, didn't I? <laughs> well, good morning, Taproot Familia. Hey, um... Let's, let's um, address the elephant in the room. Today is the MLS Cup. Let's take a moment, minute of silence that the Timbers are not in it. Just kidding. Oh, listen, that's a competitor. I can respect that to, to get in the final, Seattle beat the best. I can appreciate that. I respect it. We didn't. Good riddance to this year <laughs> as a Timber fan. But for those of y'all who appreciate the Sounders, I hope it goes your way. All right? Hey, uh, if you are new to our church, welcome to Tappard. We are so glad that you are here. This is what Tappard Church is all about. Our church exists to make disciples of Jesus. We want people to come to know Christ. We will equip you, the church. We will equip you and empower you and then send you out on the mission of bringing the king and his kingdom everywhere, every day. Now, with that thought, as we were worshiping, I remembered a story that I heard this week. This has nothing to do with the sermon, so this is totally off the cuff, and I'm just kind of going with this for just a second, okay? This week, I read the story of uh, uh, former megachurch pastor Francis Chan. Anybody ever heard of Francis Chan? Uh, great author. Uh, anyway, just a guy that I actually really respect a whole bunch. But this week, he made an announcement that him and his family, after spending some time in Southeast Asia, they really felt the call from God to leave everything behind in America and go follow this call of Jesus to go be missionaries in Southeast Asia. I mean, this guy is a guy that has been established in this country for years. And uh, anyway, this is what he wrote. This is really convicting to me uh, uh, in a good way. You're encouraging, challenging. This is what he said. He said, <clears throat> this is what I describe as happening. I feel like I've been fishing in the same pond my whole life. And now there's like thousands of fishermen at the same pond. And our lines are getting tangled and everyone's fighting over stupid things. And one guy tries some new lure and we all go, oh, he's got a new fish. Let's try that new method. And it just feels like, what are we all doing here? What if we heard of a lake that's like a five-mile hike away and no one's fishing it? And they're saying, man, the fish are biting. Just throw a hook in and they'll Go for it. Man, I'll make that five-mile hike, and I'll, I, I love fishing. Now, look at this question here. What would keep me at the same pond? I'll tell you what would keep me at that pond. That I built a house on the pond. That all my friends have houses on the pond. And we don't even fish that much. 
We just go out and we hang out and we talk and we play and I don't want to leave my friends. But if my calling is to go fish and there's no one fishing over there, why wouldn't I go? That was encouraging and challenging all at once. So my challenge for all of us is that we are invited to be a part of the greatest rescue mission in all of history. Reconciling people to God through Jesus. That's what this church is all about, making disciples of Christ. That is what we are all about. Okay. All right. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Um, And just as a reminder, very quickly, this is where we've been. There were some false teachers that were creeping their way into the Colossian church. And, and many followers of Jesus were, were being tempted to just like give up on Jesus. We're done with this thing. And so Paul is writing this letter to this church to encourage them, to, to equip them, to challenge them to remain faithful, to stay the course, to stay steadfast and to pursue Jesus, to hang on to Jesus as they are running this race called life with all the incredible difficulty that this broken world often throws our world. So Paul is saying to the Colossian Christians, as you guys are engaging the world around you, as you guys are trying to... Uh, uh, forward, move the gospel forward into the world and the community around you. When difficulty comes, stay firm on Jesus. Don't lose your grip on Christ. That's kind of the background of where we've been. Now today we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2. We're finally in chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And here is what we will see this morning. In these verses, really, we, we see the Apostle Paul like, like bearing his heart to us. We, we will see and get a sense of the, the burdens that, that Paul feels for the Christians that he's writing to at Colossae. And here are Paul's desires. Here in these verses, we see Paul's desires for this church. These are the great concerns that just burden him. This is exactly what verse 1 says, that he, is, that he is struggling so much on the behalf of the Colossians and the Laodiceans and, and those that he has not met face to face. And here are the things that he desires for these people. He wants them first to be encouraged, and he wants unity as a community. But even though those two things are great. That is not Paul's ultimate goal. His, his greatest desire doesn't end with their encouragement and with their unity as a church. What, what Paul really wants and is burdened for and, and, and desires for this church, you'll find that at the end of verses 2 and 3. And here is what he says. He desires that they may reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul wants the saints at Colossae, Paul wants you and me to be confident, to have full assurance. That is his great priority, the great burden of his heart, confidence, assurance. Paul's greatest burden for these saints that he is writing to is that he wants them to have a most certain confidence that Jesus is a solid ground on which they can build their lives on. This is the case he's been building since chapter 1. That is why he has shown us again and again how, how incredible Jesus is. This is what Paul is struggling for to see happen in the lives of the Colossians. He wants them to have full assurance, a most certain confidence in Jesus, his ways, their faith, his word. Even in the midst of great opposition, and pressure as they are witnesses of Jesus at Colossae. 
as they are the, an, an embassy of heaven, as they are the intermingling of the presence of God at Colossae, Paul wants them to be shored up and steadfast. As they engage the world around them, Paul wants to make sure that these disciples have a firm confidence and grip on the gospel. Now, can we be 100% honest for just a moment? And can we talk about the reality of doubt? How many of you, from time to time, have struggled with spiritual doubts? Yeah. We have doubts about salvation. We have doubts about Jesus. We have doubts about faith, the ways of Jesus, the Bible. Now, I would say that that struggle with assurance and confidence, spiritual certainty, struggle with spiritual certainty is a common experience for a Christian. If I can put it this way, I would say it like this, full confidence, full assurance. Certainty can only be enjoyed by a Christian, but many Christians lack that certainty, lack that confidence, lack that assurance that they are truly children of God, that really the ways of Jesus are the ways that we should follow. And it seems, at least, that the Colossians were struggling with this as well. So Paul is writing to them because he knows that false teachers have undermined the message of Jesus and the Colossians have started to struggle and they are having doubts. That sounds similar to our culture. As beautiful as South Seattle is and as beautiful as our culture is, there are many who are trying to undermine the message of Jesus and we can have doubts. So Paul's great burden for which he is struggling and he, he is laboring is that he wants this church, he wants you and me to have full assurance, confidence, and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Jesus. So Paul basically wants the church at Colossae, Paul wants you and me to know this. Listen, church, you can be sure that Jesus is the way to flourish, that Jesus is the way to life. You can anchor yourself on Jesus. Be confident of that. That is what we'll see today. Let's pray for a moment, and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for your people. Thank you for their honesty, that Yes, we all, from time to time, have struggled with doubts. I pray that today that your church would be encouraged and that we would leave this room with confidence, standing securely and steadfastly on Jesus. Do that work through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me tell you a quick story, you guys. When I was a youth pastor in Texas, there were two events that we did basically every single year. One of them was summer camp. We took kids to summer camp. You cannot be a youth pastor and not go to camp, right? Uh, we did that every single year. The second thing we did is we did a, a, a mission trip every single year. We went to, uh, one year we went to Mexico. Uh, another year we went to Atlanta. Uh, a different year we went to, we just kind of stayed local and did like this missions week thing where we just kind of, uh, did a whole bunch of outreaches to the community. Uh, in one year, we went to uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. We went to New Orleans not long after Katrina had hit, and uh, we did a whole bunch of uh, uh, like, like personal evangelism uh, in the French Quarter, uh, Jackson Square. Uh, we uh, prayed with people, shared the story of Jesus. We did uh, um, children's ministry, uh, all kind of service projects. It was just a great time. One of the things that we also did on that trip is we took this uh, walking tour of the Ninth Ward. Anybody know what the Ninth Ward is? The Ninth Ward is like this uh, uh, neighborhood in New Orleans, and basically it was ground zero for where like the most devastation happened, like right where the levee broke and the water gushed out and just, you know, destroyed everything on its path. That was right at the Ninth Ward, really low-income community. 
And so we, uh, we went there and we, we walked and, and we just kind of saw all that had happened and uh, prayed right at the le- where the leg had broken. And uh, it was just kind of a, just this crazy uh, realization to stand where so much devastation had happened. And I have this one picture uh, just ingrained in my, ma- in my mind. As we were, we were walking, we, we, uh, we came across this, um, the foundation, the cement foundation of a house just right there on the ground. And the house that had once been on that foundation literally was just like 75 feet to the side. It's like somebody had grabbed the house and just moved it over and sat it back down. And the house had come to rest on top of these two cars. So it was like these two cars and just the house. And you could see like the, the headlights and the house was right on top of them. It was just the weirdest thing. And for some reason, I just can't shake that image. The foundation, the house, where it came to rest and just witnessing the devastation of a storm. It was really, uh, it, it was just, it was real. Like we, we talk about storms and we see them on TV, but being there on ground zero really did something to me. Seeing the, the damage of the winds and the water and the, the power of all that ha- had happened, it was wild. And my point in telling you that story is this. What we have here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I would argue that it is Paul's blueprint for a Christian life that can weather any storm. I would argue that this is a blueprint for, for confidence and for certainty and for assurance. All of us who have struggled with doubts, and that's a lot of us, here we find the blueprints for how can we have confidence and assurance and certainty about Jesus and his ways and his word and his kingdom. Here's how we can build a, a, a faith that is stable and strong when hurricane winds begin to blow. And here is the reality. Just live long enough and the storm will come. I know many of your stories. I know many of the things that you are struggling with. And I know this is true. The storm will come. So let's look at these blueprints. Look at verse 1. The first thing Paul says about certainty and confidence and assurance that, that this, this is a pastoral focus for him. This is a pastoral priority for Paul. Look at what he says. I want you to know uh, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face. Now remember, these guys were strangers to one another. They had never met, but Paul is immensely burdened for them. The language he uses in verse 1, that word struggle is the word agon. It was, it was often used of wrestlers locked in a fight in this struggle. And that's what Paul is saying. This is how he feels towards them as he thinks about the great priorities that burden him on their behalf. The pulpit commentary says this, The energy and abruptness of language characterizing this second chapter bears witness to the inward wrestling which Uh, the Colossian difficulty occasioned in the apostle's mind. So Paul knows what his people are struggling with. And this dude is burdened. He is is wrestling for them. He is just, uh, he is, he feels that struggle. Again, these were churches that he had never visited. He did not plant them, but yet he was burdened for them. He was deeply affected by what was happening in those churches. While he may not have met them eye to eye, he certainly wanted to meet them heart to heart. He was burdened for those he did not see. And now this is really a convicting example for all of us. Maybe a bit off topic. But we, but we, this, in this very, we, we are connected to people that are doing ministry all over the world. 
We, we've, we've, got, we've sent missionaries from this church. We, we have sent church planters from this church. We are connected to many ministries in this community. We, we have sent members to different places. Are we burdened for them? Or just because we don't see them anymore, out of sight, out of mind? Listen, we, we spend this time together on Sunday mornings. We gather at our home gatherings throughout the week. But then, after, other than those two days, all of us are scattering throughout the city. And are we thinking and are we burdened for each other? Let me give you one example. Uh, most of you guys know that, I, that, that uh, I, uh, Amanda and I, we, in our family, we came to Seattle from Oregon. Okay. The church that I uh, uh, was a, a pastor at, they are not connected to Acts 29. They're in a different denomination. But every single month, once a month, I get a phone call from uh, the lead pastor at that church, and he just checks in on me. He prays for me. He asks about my family, and he asks about my kids. We talk about the cowboys. And then he asks me about you. I shared uh, some, I've shared some of the struggles that, you know, uh, 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 sickness, you know, uh, Steve Hansen. Uh, we've talked about, you know, uh, when Janice passed. We've talked about other things that we have struggled with as a church. And these guys who don't know you, who don't know you personally, who've never met you face to face, are burdened for you. And they pray for you. And they ask me about you. This is, this is kind of what Paul, is. this is, this is the, what we see here with Paul. Paul didn't know these people, but he was incredibly burdened for those he did not see. Are we burdened for those that we do not see day to day? Now, now most scholars conclude that the, the type of struggle that Paul means here is the struggle of prayer. He is, he is wrestling with God for these things on behalf of the Colossian saints. And what, we, and what, is, what, is, what is very clear is that the arena of this battle is prayer. This is the great burden in Paul's heart, a great priority of his heart for them. He feels this profound sense of responsibility for this fledging, struggling church at Colossae. He is struggling, he is wrestling, he is fighting that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love in order that they may reach the full assurance, confidence, certainty of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Jesus. This is a great pastoral focus and priority. And that is a great challenge for those of us who are leaders in the local church. Whether we are elders, whether we are deacons, whether we are HG leaders, whether we are ministry leaders or leading in some other capacity here at Taproot. It is challenging for two reasons. First, because of the dedication and the intensity of Paul's example. He is struggling for them. He is wrestling on their behalf. He's not coasting. He's not doing the bare minimum. He's not just doing enough to appease his conscience. He is pouring himself out for their sake. There is this intensity and, and a costliness and a sacrificial character to what he is doing. And if you are in Christian leadership, this is your calling. To give yourself for the flourishing of the people of God. Not just to touch the surface, but to give yourself wholly for their good. I would argue and say, too, that leading is also discipling. And guess what, church? All Christians are called to that. To not just coast and do the bare minimum, but to pour ourselves out sacrificially for the flooring of people. The second thing that is challenging as a Christian leader is, is, is in, in the example of Paul, is, is his focus and, and his clarity and his uh, deliberateness. 
He is not just interested in, in showing up and making small talk and giving enough attention to everybody so that no one feels left out. That's not what he is after. He, no, he, he wants them to have certainty and assurance and confidence for each of the people of God in the churches for which he is concerned. He wants to go deep. He doesn't just want to skim the surface. He wants to get to the heart of the real spiritual needs of the people of God. Those of us who are spiritual leaders, it is easy to just skim the surface to keep things light and superficial. It is much less complicated. It is much less, less messy. But Paul is calling us by his example to struggle, to pour ourselves out, to get into the fight for the flourishing of the people of God and to go deep, to go past the superficial, to the concerns of the heart, to the doubts that many of us have. For Paul, that great concern was their confidence, their assurance, their certainty that they could trust King Jesus, his ways, and anchor themselves on him. So the first thing we see is that Paul, this thing, this, uh, the, the desire for certainty and confidence and assurance for the Christian is a great pastoral priority. And I think it is worth or while noticing the challenge of Paul's example if we are leaders in the local church. Now the second thing that we see is that Paul says that assurance, confidence, spiritual certainty for whatever doubts you might have is not just a, prior, a pastoral priority for leaders. Confidence, assurance, certainty for whatever doubts you might have is, guess what, is a community project. Christianity is a bit countercultural, counterintuitive. The world we live in emphasizes individualism and isolation and independence and self preservation. But a deep understanding of Jesus comes through living in gospel community, through fellowship, mutual dependence, and self sacrifice. Maturity and certainty for whatever doubts you might have and assurance and confidence is connected with living and growing together. We'll look at this more in a second, but Paul says that he is working hard that they would be encouraged and united, knit together in love. He doesn't simply want them to work together because that makes knowing God easier. He wants them to be together because it is what makes knowing God possible. We actually mature and we find our confidence and assurance and answers to our doubts and certainty as we experience Jesus through one another. Proverbs 18.1 says this, Whoever isolates himself... Herself seeks his or her own desires. They break out against all sound judgment. So in love, stop whining. Stop half committing. Stop making excuses. Stop delaying in leaning into this family. Because the longer you do, the longer we all suffer. So this confidence, this assurance, this certainty that we can trust King Jesus, his ways, his word, and anchor ourselves on him is also a community project. Look at the first half of verse 2. He is struggling for them, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. These disciples were in need of encouragement in their struggle. Being a Christian at Colossae was hard. They were being insulted. People were slandering their character and their beliefs. Being a follower of Christ at Colossae was a tough deal. I would say that something is Similar in Seattle. Encouragement means more than just, hey, attaboy, a slap on the back, a few positive words. Now, that is a good thing, but listen, as helpful as that is, in the Bible, encouragement is way more than that. Paul uses the word parakaleo, 
It means to come alongside someone in pursuit of their strengthening and their being built up, both in your words and in your deeds. It means to come alongside someone to strengthen them and to build them up. It is, it is a strengthening word that is, check this out, not done alone. It is a corporate word that it, it cannot be done alone. That's what Paul wants for them because this is what often happens. Let's see if you agree. When you are discouraged, when we become discouraged, we become pessimistic, yeah, and we lose faith. We become suspicious and critical of others. Is that true? We tend to stop progressing and we lose our stability. But when we are encouraged, we become optimistic and we believe God's promises. We believe the best, and we are thoughtful towards others. When we are encouraged, we diligently stride forward, and we cling to the reality of the gospel. So this is what Paul wants for them, and this is what they need. Now, So many of us struggle with certainty and assurance and, and confidence, and we have doubts. We have, we have besetting sin, and we stumble, and we wonder, why can't I just get over this? How many of you have ever had that thought? Why, why can't I just let, you know, why, how long, Lord? Why am I filled with such spiritual uncertainty and doubt, not realizing that God's solution, part of God's solution, part of the remedy of God is the life of the local church? Whereas your hearts are knit together in love, you begin to find the encouragement that you need. You can speak truth in love to one another. You can pray for one another. You can wrestle this stuff together in humility. We've forgotten, haven't we, that the fight with sin that rages in our hearts, the battle with doubt and spiritual uncertainty with which we may all wrestle day by day is not a fight we can win on our own. And so Paul says the way in which we will find the encouragement that we need is when our hearts are knit together in love. This, this language Paul uses is language that evokes profound intimacy and connection and unity. This is what Paul is saying. Church, you need each other. We need each other. We need to get past the brief, hey, how you doing? I'm fine as you walk out the door. We've got to start making a connection. Consider the reasons for their need and our need for unity. They needed to stand together in the theological debates they were having at Colossae. They needed to stand together in the persecution that might come at Colossae. They needed to stand together in the midst of the struggle of being a disciple of Jesus at Colossae. And again, this is a community project. Unity needs two or more to be unified. And listen to this. What happens when we are not knit together in love? We will devour one another. Galatians 5 says this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The more we love one another, the more we encourage one another, the more we are encouraged and the more we will love. The second thing that might happen is we will become independent and sinful. Hebrews 10 says this, And let us consider, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, there is a connection between stirring up, meeting with, and encouraging one another. By contrast, without these three things, we will become independent and sinful. 
What happens if we are not united and knit together? We will not be proper ambassadors. We will not be proper representatives of Jesus. John 17 says this, In I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you love me. Biblical examples of unity here. David and Saul. As soon as he'd finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, Jonathan David. Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Samuel 18. Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. And no one said that any of the things, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So we also as Paul is concerned, we must also be concerned with unity and love. Now, let me, let me plead with you, Christian. If you have been keeping yourself purposefully on the fringes of the life of the people of God, let me plead with you to understand that your neglect of the church, which is people, is to neglect yourself. The encouragement that your heart needs as you struggle and wrestle with yourself and the daily challenges of your faith as you seek to live for Jesus, the encouragement that you need is right here. If only you will plunge in and build connection and relationships. Get yourself into an HG if you are not in one where you can be cared for, held accountable, where you can be real and honest. Stop by the welcome bus today if you are not in one and get plugged in. If you've been on the edges of things for too long and you are struggling and you need help, get into an HG, get into a Bible study, come to a men's breakfast, get plugged into one of our ministry teams where I know that HG leaders, ministry leaders, and team members will care for you. Get yourself in a place where people know you and can stand with you in your struggle. Let me say that if you are a matured or, or a seasoned Christian in this church and you are here and you're plugged in in an HE and you're serving, I thank God for you. But there is a call here to you and to me to take the initiative in pursuing those who are on the edges of things. It is our calling. It is our task to go after the new face of the person we don't know very well, to invite them for coffee, to open your home, to open your life so that our hearts might be knit together in love. And when they are, we begin to be built up, strengthened, encouraged. Our doubts, our uncertainty begins to fade. The kind, that kind of corporate church life, community life, is the only environment, the rich, fertile soil where we ought to expect and where we ought to look for the fruit of assurance and confidence and certainty to grow in our lives. That kind of community life together is the place to look for spiritual confidence and certainty and assurance. And if you lack it, it is perhaps... Because you've been living at a distance from the people of God. I am thoroughly persuaded that so many of our spiritual struggles are a consequence of our superficial connection to the life of the people of God in the local church. So Paul says, this is not only a pastoral priority and burden and focus of mine. It, it, is, it is a community project. If some, it, it is something we all must work on together. I need you and you need me if our hearts are to find the encouragement, the certainty, the stable ground that we need. The third thing Paul says is that confidence and assurance and certainty is found in Jesus. The source of confidence and assurance and certainty is Jesus. 
You can see that in the second half of verse 2 and verse 3. Paul's struggle for them is this, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to reach the full assurance, confidence, certainty of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, here, listen to this. A loving community is the context for assurance and certainty and confidence, but its source is Jesus. Robert Miri said this, for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Why would that be helpful for us? I think it's helpful because when I look at myself, I see so much of my remaining corruption, my wicked heart, my darkness, my vices, my sin. I look in, we look in, and we see pride and vanity and anger and self-righteousness. We see spiteful, angry thoughts. We hear the venom of our tongue and the self-defensiveness that brings others down and puffs self up. And we see all of it festering away, and we wonder, dude, am I even saved? How can this still be here and I be a follower of Christ. Has anybody had that experience? Where you look at your heart, you see the reality of your remaining corruption and you're left to wonder if it's real and you begin to wonder, well, maybe I am self-deceived. Well, Paul says, remember where confidence and certainty and assurance is found. Where is this assurance and confidence and certainty of understanding and knowledge to be found? Where are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge located? Listen, church is in Christ. It is Christ. Look to Christ. Keep looking to Christ. And when you doubt, look even more deeply to Christ. Yes, let's examine ourselves. Let's never excuse our sin. Let's flee from our sin and run to Jesus. The first and last and longest look our hearts must always be to the cross and to the throne where Jesus is. Some of us have tender consciences. And as we look at our hearts, we're left wondering, how can I call myself a follower of Jesus while I struggle and stumble and fall so Often, but we need to ask ourselves another question. We need to ask ourselves when we are wondering about our hearts do I really believe? Do I really want to say that the blood of Jesus is inadequate to address my case and my doubts and my uncertainty? Do I really want to say that my mess ups are bigger than God's mercy? Do I really want to say that I am so wicked, so unique, in fact, that while Jesus is inadequate and sufficient and wonderful Savior to all others who look to him, not to me? Isn't that a greater offense than anything else we might have brought to him for forgiveness? To suggest that while Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him, in my case, even though I've cried to him and sought him, I just can't quite believe that I am clean and pardoned and beloved. Listen, doubting Christian, the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. Don't doubt it. Not today, not ever. That is the promise of God. So Paul says, listen, yes, we struggle with doubt, but our certainty and our confidence and assurance, yes, it is a pastoral focus. It is a priority for Christian leaders. It is also a community project, but the source of all those things, the source, the answer to our doubts is found in Jesus. Look to him. Assurance is a pastoral priority, a community project, and it is found in Jesus alone. It comes by looking to him, running to him, resting on him, clinging to him, never straying from him. He is able. You are not unique. Your doubt, your questions, your sin, be ever so wicked. It's not beyond the rich reach of his pardoning grace. His blood can make the foulest clean. And so we all must sail. Jesus is enough. 
look to him. And the last thing I'll say is this. Paul says that certainty, as we wrestle and struggle, as we have doubts, confidence, and assurance, <coughs> having a confidence and a certainty and an assurance of Jesus is meant to protect us, to keep us safe. You see that in verses 4 and 5. I, he says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent with you in body, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Jesus. Anybody ever heard the saying, nature abhors a vacuum? Listen, something is going to fill the vacuum. If it is not growing, deeply assuring fellowship with Jesus, it will be something else. These guys at Colossae were wrestling with false teachers. They were trying to be deluded. They were trying to be persuaded that Jesus was not the way. Some of their arguments were quite plausible, Paul says. But if we can grow in this gospel-centeredness, Jesus-centered confidence and assurance by clinging to him, resting on him, knowing him, studying him, pursuing him, being transformed by him, we will be safe. As we live in Seattle, that is very opposed to the gospel of Jesus, and as we are trying to love our neighbors and engage the culture, we must stand on him. Maybe you've heard this, but when they are training people to check for counterfeit money, they don't start them off by looking at the counterfeit. They spend all their time looking at the real thing. They study the real thing in minute detail, and when they come across a counterfeit, they can immediately tell the difference. They are not deceived. They know the real thing, and so they are not deceived. Now, here is what Paul is saying. Christian, look to Jesus. He is the real thing. No matter what people say to you, no matter what philosophy comes your way, his ways are best. Jesus is it. He's the real thing. Fix your eyes on him, and when the counterfeit comes, the counterfeit worldview and philosophy comes, you will not be deceived. When the false teachers begin to assail and tempt and try to draw you away or question the reality of your faith, no, your eyes will be fixed on him, must be fixed on him, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And when that happens, we'll be able to run with perseverance the race that has been marked out for us. When the storm comes, when the pressure comes, when the suffering comes, when the doubts come, you will be protected and safe. So Paul is calling us here to look to Jesus, to finding Jesus more than enough for the need of our hearts. This type of certainty and steadfastness and assurance and confidence is a pastoral focus. It is a community priority as well. We need each other and it is found, it is sourced in Jesus. And because it is, we will be safe. And protected. And I'll finish with this. Much of what we saw in these verses will be visually and practically displayed as we respond to God's word by taking communion this morning. As we come to the tables, we will express our unity. We are a part of the same family. Our hearts are knit together in love. Here, Jesus is presented again in the tangible gospel pictured in the bread and the juice and the wine. Here we have communion with him and our faith is strengthened and we are encouraged. And from here, we are sent out into our community to display the gospel, to declare the gospel, to engage people with his life through our lives, to make disciples all while standing firm and with full confidence and certainty and assurance in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I, um, I thank you that 
the questions we might have, the doubts we might have, don't intimidate you. Our struggles, our, the things we are wrestling with, they don't intimidate you. They are not bigger than you. So we come to you with those things. And I thank you for the church. Thank you that the church is one of the means by which we can find answers to those things. I pray that we would be a people that are fighting and wrestling for each other, who we are giving ourselves to the, for the flourishing of each other. Help us to encourage each other. Help us to be a, a church that is blessed with unity, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as we wrestle and struggle and have doubts, as we are tempted by whatever happens, Lord, help us to remember that Jesus is better. And help us look to him even more deeply and found in him all the answers that we need. Help us to be a church that stands firm in the gospel. And Lord, and as we go from here to display the gospel, to declare the gospel, to engage people, Lord, help us to do so with conviction, with boldness, with certainty that you are with us, that you will not fail. And again, no matter what argument, what philosophy, what worldview might come, help us remember that Jesus is better. Help us to run to you. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, um, we're going to sing today.